Stephen Parker, welcome to the new school. Today, I'm delighted uh, to uh, welcome a friend and colleague uh, from Fairbanks, Alaska, uh, who is a uh, clinical psychologist uh, and um, whose work I've been exploring for the past week as we began to prepare to do this conversation together. He's written a book called Heart Attack and Soul in the Labyrinth of Healing. And um, he moved to Alaska 30 years ago, migrated to Alaska 30 years ago, uh, he says, to live next to archetypal wilderness. And um, he is a very uh, prolific web presence. He has uh, f at least four active websites, uh, including one that just describes his professional work, but also has websites called www.heartcurrents.com, which keeps people up to date on, um, on developments in heart disease. Um, uh, second called www.dreamcurrents.com, which is about dreams. And the third is www.youngcurrents.com, uh, which as he puts it is, what's up with Carl Jung? And there are things on it like Carl Jung's 10 best one-liners and things like that. So it's a very approachable uh, perspective on Carl Jung. Um, uh, as, as Jan Brook mentioned, a number of us uh, at Commonweal have had our own experience with heart disease. And we have this little group called the Commonweal Heart Group that's been meeting for how many years now? Uh, nine, something, eight, eight, nine years, once a month for two hours, and very profoundly important to uh, those of us who are in it. And uh, so I had a heart attack about nine years ago. And the analogies between what I experienced, Steve, and what you experienced are very moving to me. Um, uh, my wife, Cheryl, says that for the first couple of months after the heart attack, I spent my time moving rocks around in our yard. Well, you did the same thing, as we will see, on a much bigger basis, you know. Um, I also uh, had dreams of enormous waves overwhelming me. You have an image called kayaking the unconscious, where these huge waves are threatening to overwhelm you. Um, I used a lot of art, worked with Marion Weber and Santre after my heart attack, and because I, I just, you know, in other words, they'd put the stent in, the medical piece had been done. But the healing uh, was a profound challenge. And so I asked Marion Weber if she'd do a series of sand trays with me, which was very similar to the work that you did with uh, the set of images. And, and in fact, some of the images come from sand trays. And from sand trays. Yes. Oh, wonderful. So I just wanted to kind of create a context uh, and welcome you. So tell us the beginning of the story. Uh, where would you start in introducing us to your experience with uh, your heart attack? I had a dream <clears throat> in uh, 2000, in the fall of 2000. I dreamed there was a, a red plane with a red four-cylinder engine, and the engine was smoking oil, smoking and, and leaking oil, uh, very visibly so. And the plane takes off and then crashes. And I woke, sat bolt upright in bed, it was five o'clock in the morning, and a voice in my head said, you have heart trouble. And, and uh, it totally startled me. And uh, 
So I went to the doctor and we talked and I had no symptoms of heart problems. I had good cholesterol, was fit, exercised a lot, had no, no symptoms at all. And so we didn't, we said, well, that's interesting dream, but it doesn't mean anything. And three months later, I was walking up by a uh, hill near my, in my, near my house and I almost didn't make it home. I was sweating, I had to kneel down three times. It was a, a life-threatening experience. Mm -hmm. So it started uh, with that dream. And in retrospect, I mean, after I've had this, uh, after I recovered from the heart attack and heart problems, I wondered why I hadn't paid more attention, other people weren't paying more attention to dreams. So that's also become kind of a quest, is to suggest how dreams are connected to consciousness and illness. Mm -hmm. So that was your first heart attack. Well, actually, that wasn't a heart attack. Okay. I was uh, uh, flown down to Anchorage. Uh, I was misdiagnosed. I called a friend. He said, we'll take care of you in San Francisco. I flew down to San Francisco. Uh, my symptoms, the doctor said, go to the emergency room. And I had an operation. I had a, like a, a two-inch blockage in the major artery, and, mm -hmm. uh, but survived. So, okay. And that was, yeah, that was 10 years ago. Right. And uh, so... Uh, after, uh, after you had the stent put in, uh, as you say, for months after the stent was implanted, I felt stunned and out of sorts. Uh, so you decided to do something unusual. What did you do? Uh, I thought the right thing to do was to build a cave. Uh, <laughs> that doesn't, doesn't everybody, Michael? You know. <laughs> I needed a cave. Uh, to crawl into essentially, and uh, this is Alaska. You don't have zoning too much, and I had a I, I had a friend with a bulldozer, and, and called him up in August and said, "You know, Rich, can you come and uh, dig a hole for me?" So he did, and four hours later, there's a gaping hole in the backyard, and then I started building a cave. What did it take to build the cave? Uh, it took about uh, ten truckloads. I had to go to a mountain to get rocks about an hour away, and. Uh, did about 10 loads of rocks and then 10 loads of sand and gravel. And I didn't know what I was in for. I mean, I had no idea. I'd never built a cave before, of course. And uh, it, it took, finally, it took from August. I was working pretty straight August till October. Mm -hmm. So you built the cave out of stone. Right. It's about, um, it's ten, I'm sorry I don't have good pictures. It's about 10 feet wide by about 15, 10 by 15. And it's, it's, a, it's like a, cur it's a dome. Uh, the front of it is a dome and the back of it is, a, is square, somewhat like the image, the pictures that are upstairs. And uh, my father-in-law is Polish. He thought I was building a bomb shelter. He had lots of experience with cement and concrete, so we had a great time together with this. And, uh, and what, what was it like for you after you'd finished it and you began to inhabit it? What was that like? It was very grounding. I mean, it just felt like the right, the right place to be. It, it, you know, it was sort of... It, it, it brought me back to the world. Mm -hmm. you know. So, lots of people have intuitions like this, but very few people actually go out and build the cave, right? Particularly, you know, 10 truckloads of, you know, rock and, you know, tons of concrete and so on and so forth. So, clearly, you're a person who listens in some way to these inner promptings. Right, and I hadn't listened to the first message, which was, you know, you've got heart problems. Right. I think I, but since then, I think I really have come to trust that I need to listen. And I right. think that's, I mean, that's how I've ended up here. Right. And I really listen to what needs to be built. Right. Now, then, uh, sometime after that, in January 2004, you had this 
this dream of, uh, of ravens uh, uh, pecking at pink insulation on your house. Yeah, this didn't feel good. It right. felt like something, you know, three black birds pecking at something. This felt really uh, wrong. And so I, you know, this is about two, I think it was two years after the first stent. And I went to the doctor and I went to the, you know, get checked out and I had blockage again in, the, in another artery. So that was that was the premise. I mean, that was this foreboding of the of the image. I mean, this is if you can see, this is kind of a heart. It's been you know, attacked. And then after that, six months after that stent was put in, you began to experience what's called restenosis, which is uh, which is scar tissue growing. Uh, Around the stent, right? Right. It's a real. It's about thirty percent of it with both stents. That's right. the major problem: is, is the growth around the scar right. tissue. So you came to San Francisco and found a cardiologist who, as you say in cardiology parlance, is quote a good man with a wire. Uh, yes. Who, uh, who did? Uh, he put a drug eluting stent in, and the next day you went to walk the labyrinth at Grace Cathedral. Yes. My wife had told me about this. I thought it was kind of a new age fad, actually. was kind of reluctant to go, but mm -hmm. said, I'll, I'll, I'll go along. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I walked it, I was just, I was amazed. It really, it changed my mental state. Mm -hmm. and it was a very kind of peaceful feeling a, and a, a calm that happened and kind of a recentering that happened by going to the labyrinth. And of course, I figured I had to build one. That's right. Being the kind of guy that builds a cave, <laughs> right. you decided to build a labyrinth. Right? Yeah. Uh, this came from the, the, oh that that came from the inside. I had no. It was just what felt like. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. There was a. Right. By the way, that's a stent across the Golden Gate. It looks like the bridge, right. but it's actually a stent. Um, so we're going. This is the. Uh, yeah, that's the labyrinth. Right. So that's the labyrinth. You. Yeah, that's another ten loads of stones. Mm -hmm. so. Now, what did your wife think of this? <laughs> She laughed. She knows better than to try to suggest she's otherwise. She's a Jungian so therapist. She's a Jungian, yes, she's a Jungian psychologist. Yes, very supportive of this. And in fact, when you met, uh, you were talking from a different point of view about dreams, yeah. and she came up to you and said uh, that uh, you didn't know what you were talking about. Right, I was talking, I moved to Cordova, Alaska to uh, run a mental health center there and was, ran a course on dreams, and she was in the class, and I, I knew Freud and behavioral approaches to psychology and she knew Jung and I gave the talk and said you don't know what you're talking about mm -hmm. about dreams and then so we started talking mm -hmm. and we're still talking mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good sign uh, now uh, in November 2005 uh, you felt a, a new pain in your chest um, you were at home si sipping a cup of coffee it was uh, between 12 and 1 o'clock uh, you'd been hiking around in, in zero-degree temperatures. So tell us what happened. Uh, so I thought, I would, this is, I take, take a sip of coffee, I think I'm having heartburn. You sort of get uncomfortableness in your chest. Uh, took some antiacids, and just the pain got worse. Uh, thought, uh, you know, strangely, as a, in all these, you know, I had five years of heart issues. No doctor had ever been taking me aside and say, these are the symptoms of heart attack. Or, or nurse, or no one had taken me aside. If you have these symptoms, this is what you do. But they had not been very clear. So I really didn't quite know, realize that's what it was. Mm -hmm. There was something wrong. And uh, I took aspirin, took a whole bottle. I mean, I just started swallowing aspirin, nothing helped. Uh, started doubling over. I could not breathe. 
And then, so we, uh, I got my wife out at work and uh, we drove her to the hospital. Just as an aside, if any of you have these kind of symptoms, call the ambulance. Don't drive to the hospital you know, because they have the equipment on there and they can take care of you sooner. Mm -hmm. so, so we got there. Uh, they couldn't do anything. Cardi uh, Fairbanks didn't have any cardiologists at, at that time. So they, they couldn't do anything. They uh, evacuated me to, Fair to Anchorage by jet. And, and you were flown on a small plane to Anchorage? Uh, uh, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you with two doctors and two nurses? Yes. And you remember thinking that you'd never had that much leg room that on That much leg room Anchorage. Anchorage, that's right. Yeah. right. <laughs> it's a, the, the only way to fly. It's really... <laughs> <laughs> but it's another similarity between us because when I had my heart attack, I was evacuated by plane from, uh, from Bolinas. Um, and I actually had a very interesting experience. It was a smaller plane, uh, a, a nurse and a, uh, and a pilot. And I remember I was over the bay, and I thought to myself, I want to live with every fiber of my being, but if I die now, I'm okay. And what interested me was that having been co-leading the cancer help program for... Um, 17 years at that point and talking to people about death and dying, I'd always wondered how I would be in the face of that. And I was fascinated to discover that both I wanted to live with every fiber of my being and if I had to die, I would be okay with that. And yes. the, the similarities are just fascinating because I've mentioned the other ones already, but then when I get to the hospital, they say... Mr. Lerner, you're having a heart attack. And they take me into the intensive cardiology unit and they begin to put the stent in. And they're playing music. And in your case, it was uh, John Denver's Take Me Home. Right. <laughs> yeah, and, and in fact, one of the texts says, hey, didn't John Denver die? <laughs> so they, well. So in my case. What's funny? No. <laughs> So in my case, the music was knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. <laughs> you got to be kidding. No. <laughs> I, I played that song a lot when I, was, no, when I was writing this blog. That was one of the songs I knock, played knock, a lot. Knock, knock, knocking on heaven's I, door. I did. Was one of them. Go the, figure. The, the other experience I had was after the first stint, right. I called a friend in from, uh, and we went to, came to the city and we took a boat ride. Of course, right. I was still not quite sure what reality was. And we get on this boat. And I didn't know they did this. The boat went out beyond the Golden Gate Bridge. Mm -hmm. I was born right near the Golden Gate. So I thought, whoa, <laughs> here I go. You know, mm -hmm. I'm going out into the great unconscious. Mm -hmm. right. <laughs> Under the Golden Gate Bridge. It's been nice. Right. <laughs> but to my surprise, the boat turned around. Right. <laughs> <laughs> now, this, the second heart attack, or the second event, because this was a really big heart attack. Yes. A huge heart attack. Yes, the, the uh, nurses kept telling me, says, boy, you really took a big hit. Mm -hmm. None of the doctors told me this, but they said, mm -hmm. you took a big hit. I didn't quite know what they meant. And mm -hmm. what, what it amounted to was that I'd had the, the troponin level, which is a, a measure of um, muscle enzyme breakdown. It may, this is a classic thing. If, you, if they wonder whether they're having a heart attack or not, they'll take your blood. Mm -hmm. And that's what they're doing is checking the level of this. And if you have a certain level, then you've had a heart attack. I had the biggest level they'd seen in a long time. Mm -hmm. So there was some, it was a big hit. Mm-hmm. So then you had another episode with discovering that drug-eluting stents 
weren't as good as people thought they were. And, and right, and this is a controversy in the field, but at that right. time, there's some evidence that drug-eluting stents, in fact, were increasing the likelihood uh, for about 3% of people and increased the likelihood of a fatal heart attack, right. a, a severe type. So right. this, is, this right. is my theory and what happened right. to me. So then, out of this came this series of drawings. We won't go through all of them, right. but a series of drawings that you did. And one of the things I want to say about this, there are... One thing a lot of people don't understand about the healing arts is that the healing arts are not about the artistic quality of the image. The healing art is about the use of art as an expressive tool in healing. Yes. And one of the things, uh, when Carl Jung uh, was a commandant in the First World War of a British uh, soldier's intern, uh, um, camp, and he began the famous set of drawings of mandalas that marked a turning point in his life. This was mm -hmm. uh, after his break with Freud, uh, after three years of intensive introspection and what seemed like close to madness, and then he's the commandant of this uh, place, and he starts to do this series of mandalas. And uh, there's a point in his... Um, uh, autobiography, I believe, but in one of his writings where he says that there was a woman friend of his who was trying to convince him that this was art, that this was aesthetic art. And he said he had to break with her because it was dangerous for him to take this as an aesthetic exercise when in fact what he was doing was exploring the encounter with the soul. And I think this is a critical point that many people, when they look at yeah. healing art in this sense, look for professional finished art of one point. Nothing could be less relevant. Uh, I know with my own work of art, it's, it's extremely crude. You know, yes. I have no particular artistic gifts at all. But whether I'm doing Santre with Marion, which of course is a place where you know, aesthetic is not the point at all, or whether I'm doing drawings or sculpting, mm -hmm. my efforts are deeply crude and yet profoundly important to me. And so it just seems to me that as we look at images, we're not looking at, I think you, yours are, are uh, you know, uh, something that I can look at and really see much more than my own. But as we look at images, we're not looking at their aesthetic value we're looking at their transformational impact and the power that they had for you in the healing process. Right, I think it became a matter of trust in the images. Right. I, I had no, often I wouldn't, I may, may have had some general idea in mind before I started, but right. I didn't know what I was going to do. And right. I was, it helped when I sort of just stepping back and let whatever wanted to be expressed happen. Right. And, the, and they certainly weren't drawn, these weren't drawn, drawn to share or have an art exhibit or anything else. It right. was just, I was, it had been six weeks after the heart attack. I was desperate. I was totally depressed. I didn't right. want to get out of bed. Right. And something in my head said, said what? maybe you should draw. And mm -hmm. I remembered about computer programs that you can draw. You, they're graphic-assisted uh, right. drawing. And right. so I found some free computer thing and started drawing with a computer. Because mm -hmm. I can't, I don't use, I'm not, I'm real awkward with paintbrushes. Right. But a right. computer right. I know how right. to use. Right, exactly. So what was the impact of doing this whole series of, uh, of images for you? Well, well, interestingly, I think each one brought relief, though it certainly mm -hmm. wasn't the total relief I mm -hmm. was hoping for. Mm -hmm. and I was still extremely anxious and extremely depressed. Mm -hmm. uh, though with each time I would draw, it would let, be less so for a while. Mm -hmm. And about February, a little more than a year later, 
I had another crazy idea. It said, you know, you should write a blog for 40 days. You got to spend the next 40 days going over, you know, telling a story and going mm -hmm. over each one of the images and mm -hmm. see what comes to mind. So it, it was, an, it was that, that sort of uh, cognitive part of things mm -hmm. that really, really helped even, I would say, even more than drawing. So they're certainly in combination with it. Mm -hmm. But when I started seeing the, there's a, there's a pattern underlying the drawings that I was not aware of at all mm -hmm. that was happening within the drawings and that, mm -hmm. that, that became clearer as I, as I worked with it. Mm -hmm. But these, I mean, but it was also amazing to me. I mean, I would take that day, get some work done on my other life, but by the end, I never knew whether, what I would find out that day, but by the end of the day, there would be something that had, had gelled and something had come from somewhere that had helped me understand it. Now, one of the things that helped, I set up a treadmill in my uh, room and had a computer on the treadmill. I think walking, if you ever have a heart attack or anything, walking saved my life. I had lots mm -hmm. of arrhythmias. I, wasn't, I was very weak, but mm -hmm. by walking uh, you know, slowly as much as I could, and if you walk slowly on a treadmill, you can use a computer. You know, two miles an hour, it's, mm -hmm. you can walk for a long time. Mm -hmm. So I'd be walking and sort of surfing the internet and thinking and trying to put things together and, and wouldn't be coming up with anything. Then about two hours into it, after I sort of my, I was exhausted in some ways, that's, when, that's in some ways when the gates were more open. Mm -hmm. And it was often these things were completed at the end of the day with that, some, that sort of framework. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that, uh, do we have a... No, no, this is, it's just, it's got, it's, okay. it just came off. It's interesting that when Jung talks about the power of these images in his own work, he says that, um, that when he can take an emotion and turn it into an image, that there's a deep release and that in fact, for Jung, the image was at the, um, at the root of the emotion. It was the discovery of the image that was at right. the root of the emotion. Right, and I think that's one of the most profound. He said lots of profound things, and this is among the most profound. Right. To the extent that I could find the, the image that was, was in the, uh, within the, um, the emotion, I was inwardly calmed and reassured. Right. Now, he said, in fact, before he could even get to that, he did yoga. You know, he, had, he was so agitated by, these, by this flood of material coming mm -hmm. from there. It was only until he settled down enough with yoga that then he could start doing the, uh, mm -hmm. the drawings. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting for me that Carl Jung is, for me, the greatest psychologist of the 20th century, and for me, a greater psychologist than Freud. Even though Freud discovered the unconscious, he discovered it in this very secular framework. Um, and what Jung did is, t is take this secular framework and then after his break with Freud uh, and after this encounter with insanity over three years, which he recorded in, in the Red Book, um, uh, but he said later that it was from this encounter that all his best work was done. And if you read... Um, the series of discoveries that followed from, uh, you know, what seemed like professional suicide. I mean, here he was, he was on this frontier area of psychology. He joined Freud, who himself was highly controversial. Freud saw him as his successor. And then he breaks with Freud. He resigns as the president of the International Psychoanalytic Association. And his life is in chaos. It's, it's uh, and yet, out of that encounter comes this extraordinary psychology, which more than anything else, um, 
is based on the experience of a living numinosity, whatever you call it, God, or whether you call it whatever you call it. And for Jung, that encounter with that living numinosity is the source of the most creative forces available to us as human beings. Yeah, yeah I can only second that. I think he was profoundly more deeply psychological than Freud. And it's unfortunate that Freud is in some ways seen as the man who's, you know, who's a psychiatrist. But Jung had so much more to say in depth. And I, mm -hmm. I knew Jung theoretically before the heart issues, but it was only when I went through this experience, and in mm -hmm. fact only when I was looking at drawings and suddenly things started making sense from a mm -hmm. Jungian viewpoint. Mm -hmm. And even in every year it's deepened in the sense of mm -hmm. how, how profoundly similar and deep the experiences are, mm -hmm. and religious in fact. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So... Um, when, we, when we look at this complete experience of yours, um, what stands out to you as sort of the, the lessons uh, for, for healing? I mean, one, one piece that stands out for me is, and you introduced me to a word that I'd heard before, uh, but I didn't remember what it meant. You, you speak of prodromal dreams. Yes. What is a prodromal dream? A prodromal dream is a, is a dream that comes before illness. Literally, it's, it's from Greek pro meaning running and dromon and before. So right. it's running, uh, I mean, dromal meaning running. So right. it's before, running before dreams. And a prodromal dream is a dream that, you, that, that in some ways uh, tells you that you have an illness or, or, or health, too. It also indicates you know, mm -hmm. health is returned before consciousness is aware of it. So... You know, this, I had this, this whole thing started with a prodromal dream, right. with, a very, with a voice saying, you have heart trouble. Now, I didn't listen to that, and the doctor didn't listen to it, and most people don't listen. And in fact, when I would tell cardiologists about this, they would roll their eyes, and you could, I, they got this look in their eyes about me, like, well, we got one of them now. Mm -hmm. you know, so I learned not to tell cardiologists about mm -hmm. this dream. But, but I've, since then, I've given a number of presentations on prodromal dreams. There's a small but significant history of them and that give you, it's like an early warning system about the state of the body. Right. Aristotle talked about dreams being, you know, describing a good state of health or a bad state of health. Mm -hmm. Right. And you just came back from Hawaii giving a talk to a group of scientists there on this. Is yes, there's a group of molecular biologists, in fact. Mm -hmm. and I was asked to about this thing on prodromal dreams. It's kind of a counterbalance to the mm -hmm. very highly scientific mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. viewpoint. So I wonder... How do we, what is our sense of how prodromal dreams work? That they, that they are, that they exist is true, but it's not only prodromal dreams about uh, future illnesses. There are, are many examples. Jung's famous dream of uh, foreseeing world war. About the blood flowing all over the continents. Exactly. Yes. So there are many people who experience these dreams, and in, in original peoples, uh, you have. Um, indigenous people who are guided quite frequently by the dreams of uh, elders and, uh, and uh, shamans. So what is your sense of how prodromal dreams actually work? What do you think is going on? I, I, mean, I think within, within all of us, it's kind of, there's an organizing principle. I, mean, I think it's related to Jung's concept of the self. It is a mm -hmm. sense that there's a wholeness within. And there's a, a, in, uh, in dream theory, there's a something called the theory of vigilance, which is that you, since you're not having to be in the outside world, at night you have this huge biocomputer and you can utilize it 
you know, to help you survive. So what you're doing at night is rehearsing and reviewing all the things of the day and what might be coming next and so on. So there's a part that's kind of looking at the whole picture and it's getting, you know, it's connecting the dots with all that's going on. And mm-hmm. so you can get this, it's like a, uh, an internal uh, government. They can, t- mm-hmm. they can say this is what's going on. That explains it for dreams of future illness. But what about dreams of future events that are not biologically driven? How do you think those work? That, that uh, space and time are you know, the same thing. Mm-hmm. And so that's, the future is, still, is now. So there's a, there is, it's, we're all part of the same fabric at the same time. So this is where Jung's concept of synchronicity comes in. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I think he could, I mean, he could see the unconscious. I mean, that was he, one of the things that he said was what, what makes me different from other people is, is for me, the walls are transparent. Mm-hmm. I mean, he really, he, this shocked me when I read this because that really describes what he's about. He has, a, he has a way of perceiving that most of us, you know, we sometimes get that glimpse, but he was, it was constantly with him. It's almost like he could see the movies of the unconscious. Mm-hmm. Jung, toward the end of his life, um, began to write more about uh, modern man in search of a soul, began to write more about um, the dilemma, not just of us as individuals, but of, of humanity. Um, uh, is that a part of his work that you've looked at uh, in any depth? Yes, and I think, I mean, that's one of his profound message, messages. The, it, there's a movie, Petrified Force, 1930s movies, with Humphrey Bogart. He's the bad guy. He's Duke Manatee. And, and the, the, the hero is in the desert in Arizona, just wandering in the desert, and, and he has a, one book in his backpack. And this is, 19, this is two years after this was written. And he pulls it out of his backpack, and it's Modern Man in Search of a Soul. You know, and he's in this wasteland of a desert. It was just, and I think that, I think that really describes where we are as a civilization, we've lost, we've really lost our soul. Mm-hmm. So Jung has a beautiful quote, which I think is in your book, uh, which he says, in fact, I think it's right here, uh, right at the start. Oh, yes. The, um, mm-hmm. He says, I cannot prove to you that God exists, but my work has proved empirically that the pattern of God exists in every man and that this pattern in the individual has at its disposal the greatest transforming energies of which life is capable. Find this pattern in your own individual self, and life is transformed. Yes, that's in fact the closing quote in the book. I, I, I just find that, uh, every time I hear that, it just it mm-hmm. gives me goosebumps. It's really mm-hmm. extraordinary. Mm-hmm. It's, from, it's from Carl Jung. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so his, and, and correct this if I'm wrong, but as I read Young, he, he starts with a vi- vision of indigenous peoples, of original peoples, as living in a, in a numinous world in which the divine was in rocks and trees, it was in everything. And then uh, as monotheism began to take place, the numinosity was withdrawn from the world as a whole and became a more abstract god. And then as the Enlightenment took place and science began to spread out as an interpretive system, uh, then God herself or himself was increasingly questioned until we arrive at the present point in which many, many people regard the universe as dead and inert, 
uh, and life as an accident that took place on a star just as a result of some chemical interactions. And consciousness is a byproduct of these accidental chemical reactions. And so the whole thing is that consciousness is just a kind of a happenstance in a dead universe. I'm slightly, you know, overstating yes. it. And, and from Jung's uh, point of view, this wasn't the only way to look at the universe, that you could see the universe as alive, and, that, and yet he, he believed that we couldn't go backward, that science was there as an interpretive system, and that therefore humanity, which had this imprint of the God image that we were designed to experience the numinous, uh, where do you find that in a reliable way? Well, some contemporary people searching around find it in art, some find it in nature, and so, you know, we have what Joseph Campbell calls follow your bliss, but it's this very atomized system where everybody needs to go out and find something to which numinosity can be attached uh, as a form of finding meaning. Uh, but that makes it very difficult for us to have the communal experience of, of meaning uh, because it's such an atomized process. So uh, that's one interpretation, but I'm curious as to what, what yours is. Well, there's a lot there. The, you know, I mean, churches, when they function at their best, or used to be, that's what they were about, is that it's a, it's a common religious, numinous experience. But I think even by third century, they took the, it was like, already taken out. I mean, you couldn't have your own, God couldn't speak to you. Hildegard von Bingen, she, she wasn't, I mean, there wasn't, she, they thought she was, you know, kidding when God, they, because she was a woman, mm -hmm. you know, God can't speak through you. So mm -hmm. people no longer have that experience. So mm -hmm. I think, you know, that's what religion is, is a sense of the numinous. And when you can, you know, be part of a church that has that feeling, mm -hmm. and that's, that's what it is at its best. The, um, some of this hearts back, it seems to me, the Jasper Jane's, you know, breakdown of consciousness, you know, the origins of consciousness and a breakdown of the bicameral mind, mm -hmm. which is a 70, well, 70s popular book. But we, you know, when you go from the left hemisphere, when you develop the left hemisphere, you, you, you also stop that sense of wholeness. Part of the function of the right hemisphere is to see mm -hmm. things as a whole. But when you, we become a very left-brained, detailed, categorically oriented society, and you lose that sense of awe and sense of the miraculous. Einstein said something like, you know, either the universe is a miraculous place or it's not. Mm -hmm. And he says, I, I saw, you know, side was saying it's, it's, it's a miraculous place. It's a total miracle. Mm -hmm. He and Jung sat down to dinner for a couple nights back in 1912 or 1913. Mm -hmm. What an amazing dinner this must have been. Mm -hmm. You know, but this is where, this is before, you know, the theory of uh, speed of light came from and synchronicity. I mean, it's all, it was connected mm -hmm. back then. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Jung actually did some very interesting work with a physicist, uh, Pauli, was Wolfgang it? Wolfgang Pauli. Yeah. And uh, so they thought together about contemporary physics and synchronicity specifically, right? Yes. He was originally a patient of his. Mm -hmm. And then they developed, then they, you know, one of his books is, is really about Pauli's dreams, 400 of his dreams. Mm -hmm. and, and so the argument that they were making was that uh, contemporary physics and the psychological concept of synchronicity, that there are a-causal relationships that create patterns, really were converging as a way of understanding both scientific and psychological truth. Yeah, Jung's, you know, my, and my understanding is that he's, psyche and matter are the same. We, that we just, we're just seeing different aspects of mm -hmm. it, but you know, the psyche is in mm -hmm. the matter and mm -hmm. vice versa. Mm -hmm. So that's so when you have synchronistic events, that you're, you're, that's what you're experiencing, mm -hmm. so both, both sides of it.
Jung also was fascinated very near the end of his life with uh, UFOs. Yes. Yeah. And it's, it's an interesting thing because there's a, a young man here in Bolinas named James Fox, who um, is the son of a friend of mine, Charles Fox, uh, who became one of the, the leading authorities on uh, UFOs and appears on you know, television and so on. But he made a film, which he showed in Bolinas, uh, with remarkable documentation of uh, researchers, scientists, and so on, uh, showing evidence of UFOs. Um, and for those who haven't seen it, it sounds like I'm totally flaked out here. But if you, I, I suggested to a bunch of friends of mine who were skeptics that they watch James Fox's film, and several came up to me afterward and said, you know, I think it's real. Uh, but I've, I've often thought that um, here again, Jung, Jung tried to interpret UFOs as projected symbols of wholeness, right? Yes. In other words, he was saying we are in such a shattered time uh, that these are projected symbols of wholeness. And yet I think he wondered whether they were also real in some sense. Right, they're like, they're like mandalas. I mean, they're that right. organizing self that's out, that's out there. And I think people kind of scoffed at him because he right. had this interest in flying saucers. Right. And Jung also had the sense that we were living in a time, he talked about the, the change from the Piscean age to the age of Aquarius, but that we were living in a period of time where where there was a transformation of the gods that that in, I think he was quoting Nietzsche that there was a transformation of what the gods actually meant and he was afraid that if we made ourselves into gods and didn't realize the power of the nuclear bombs and all the other technologies that we were creating that we were going to destroy ourselves because we had misread our place in the universe in a fundamental way. We had made ourselves gods and uh, misread uh, the dangers that we were creating. Right, he talks about the puffed up ego. He actually used those right. terms in translation. But he, he, and he said the world is hanging by a slender thread. And that, that thread is the psyche of man. Right. Yeah. And he was particularly concerned that one of the places that we projected the God image was onto the state, whether it was fascism or communism or capitalism, and that the state was a terrible um, substitute for, um, for the divine or for the numinous. Yes. Mm -hmm. And now it's the corporation. Okay. So where are you headed in your life now? Where, where are your interests taking you now? Before coming here, no, I so I so this was this this is a transition point for me too. I'm not sure what I'm going to do next, mm -hmm. um, but I was working a lot with rocks, mm -hmm. uh, surprisingly. So I've been <coughs> I moved rocks all summer. Mm -hmm. So I have some images. Let me show you some of those. Yeah, I'd love some to see some. Yeah. And there's <coughs> so we live in Fairbanks, and uh, we're on a hill at. We didn't know this until we got some property from next door. When it was, we can see the Alaska Range 100 miles away on mm -hmm. a clear day. So it's a be this beautiful view of perspective of things. And uh, for whatever reasons, when you, where I was digging, creating this this new, what I was trying to do is create a sacred kind of retreat center. 
both for myself and for others to create as a place to contemplate and so on. So we are digging my friend Rich with the bulldozers come back and we're, let's see. He's, he's a landscape artist. He really is. <laughs> so we started digging this, it was just a hillside. And uh, uh, I'm also a bit of a scavenger and they have, this is a trip from a trampoline, that's from a trampoline um, um, frame but it's 14 feet wide. And so I put this 14 foot wide frame over the ground and we dug there. And out of that, um, I guess you can see through this here. It's just moving forward, we can let it go. Oh, okay, I'll, I'll, let me just pause it here a minute. Mm -hmm. uh, out of that ground, that, out of that one place that he dug, came the rocks that made these huge flat stones that made the, um, uh, the circle. Mm -hmm. So, let me... Let me just see if we can get her back here. Yeah, so these, the, all these rocks were right there. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it was like the self itself. I mean, it was like it was just, it was there to be, mm -hmm. to be transformed. And so this is a, like a 14-foot circle with, with rocks. It's like a giant sand plate, actually. You know, Steve, so, one thing that strikes me looking at your rock images is that on the computer... As you said, you know, you're, you were very limited as to what you could do aesthetically, but your, your rock structures are exquisite, you know. Yes, no, I, pr I, I prefer, I mean... Right, I prefer so rocks. that, in other words, the, the computer gave you something that you needed to do from a process point of right. view, but the rock work is, um, is exquisite to me. It's aesthetically exquisite to me. Right. I, I, I mean, I, I like the three-dimensionality right, of it exactly. and the texture of it. Right, right, right. Um, so, so this is also, this is, now this is a fire pit. Mm -hmm. All sacred places or mm -hmm. retreats need, a, need mm -hmm. a fire pit. And if you look up here, so I built, I built this thing, and these, most, almost all these rocks came from the area, mm -hmm. came from the outcropping. And so right at the top here, it seemed it wasn't quite finished, so, mm -hmm. so it needed a... Uh, uh, a head, you mm -hmm. see. So this is, like, this is like a head to the... But you see, what that means, if that's the head, then... And that's a fire pit. That would make fire in the belly, mm -hmm. which is a nice image, is sort of this burning thing. So, so this, is a rock, this is a rock wall. There's a cabin right next to it that I'm building. In fact, part of this project up here that came is their copper frames. Mm -hmm. Well, at a garage sale, I'd found this you know, extra copper roofing. And so mm -hmm. I put a copper ceiling into this, mm -hmm. this cabin. And um, mm -hmm. this is the cabin that's right to the right of this. It's not finished. So mm -hmm. There are no images of this. Uh, so here, if you notice, this is all bed. This used just to be a sloped lamp mm -hmm. here. If, and when we took it away, mm -hmm. there was this beautiful outcrop. There are these flat bedrock mm -hmm. stones. These stones, when they're broken up, are what makes for the for this, and this is going to be a pond behind here in, in the spring. Okay, so, but this, this was just happened mm -hmm. to be there. Mm -hmm. no. oh. So it's as if your whole property has become a giant sand tray. And, uh, Life is a giant yeah. sand tray. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd like to open it up a little bit now, uh, and uh, we're going to shortly go upstairs and, and uh, see uh, Steve's uh, remarkable... Uh, uh, drawings in uh, 
and Jackie and Steve have, have put them together in a very beautiful way. But Marion, since you've done a lot of Santre work, uh, and as you listen to this, what comes to you? Oh, I just love it. I, just, I love everything that you're doing. And I, I, you know, I, a personal note, I, I'm the same way. I, I move rocks all the time <laughs> when I'm not doing Santre or whatever. And it's part of my deep healing and comfort. I have something called the Rockland I would love to show you, <laughs> yes. where I've worked for 17 years to have it create a certain harmony mm -hmm. that's nurturing to me mm -hmm. and my friends. And so I love, I love, I love, and I understand completely what you're doing with making the cave and, and doing this land work, this rock work. Um, and I agree about the Santre thing. I, I think Santre is like a little life practice. It's like a little mini life mm -hmm. practice. Mm -hmm. and, but um, bravo! I mean, it's, I can't wait to see. What you're if, I, if I can make a comment, sand tray. You know, the original prescribed sand play is a square box. It's a rectangular box, 24 inches by 30 inches. No, they, the, your, yours and this one here is round. Right. They have a huge sand play here, but it's round, and I. Right. You can, it's an ex-fire pit, so and it's a much more appropriate place to create something. So you should understand that, that Marion created group sand tray and created that circular form that we have yeah. the sand tray in. Yeah. Yes, and it makes much more sense to have yeah. it circular. But it's so thrilling to be in the place of discovery with eight, eight people. Yes. yes. Maybe yes. it can be better than that. Right. You know? mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. the circle, uh, it would be interesting to see if, if you uh, bring sand into your, into your retreat, whether... I'm right. still. Well, that, that fort, it is a giant sand tray, so they will be there. Well, yes. Well, and in fact, one of my clients had just gone through a loss and funeral. She came down with sand tray objects and put them in this, in the big, in this thing. We had a fire and everything. It was a wonderful healing ceremony. Mm -hmm. So, if I could just add to this, so this is this, pro, this is the unfinished project. This right. is where we're not. I'm not quite done with because it snowed. You can't pour concrete when it's below freezing. Mm -hmm. uh, you can try, but. Mm -hmm. uh, so the idea here is this, there's going to be a red egg. This is a, the half a red egg. You can see the, there's a rock right here. Mm -hmm. But it's going to be an egg that's four feet wide and five feet high. Mm -hmm. and the, the, one of the dominant images in this book, and this is a new cover of it, is there's a red egg. In about 10 or 15 of the images, you'll see that there are red eggs that appear. And so, of course, the voice in me says, well, you have to build a red egg. You know, so what can I do? <laughs> so... so you know, it's, a, it's also from the, the, in the old days with Asclepius and healing and dreams, you would go to this dreaming chamber and have a, a dream inside it, and the dream would help you heal. And so the idea is to create this sort of healing egg. So I'm... I'm uh, big enough to go in it? Yes, big enough. It's a meditative egg. You're going to sit on this. You know, there's, there's a stone there. You'll sit on it. So, so I'm, I'm, you know, I, I'm compelled to do this. I don't quite know why, or a willing person. And, and then I come across this... Uh, um, yeah, I'm searching for Mary here. There, there she is. So then I come across this image. This is Mary Magdalene and the red egg. This is, it just it makes me cry almost. This was <laughs> the story, <laughs> the story behind this. So, so she goes, you know, this is Mary Magdalene, the woman who wrongly was depicted as, the pros as, a, as kind of a redeemed prostitute. In fact, she was the apostle of the apostles. She was, you know, Jesus loved her more than anyone. And she was the first one to, at the resurrection to discover that he had been born again. So, so and she was very much, in, when you talk about being in service of the living Christ, she was in service to the, to the self. 
So she goes to, to Emperor Tiresias or Tiberius after the death of Jesus and says, you know, you're not giving this man his due. And Pontius Pilate was a bad man. And he said, well, Jesus was no more resurrected than that egg in your hand can turn red. Well, of course, the egg turns red. And this is, this is the origin of, you know, this becomes a myth on the story, but this is the, this is the origin of dying Easter eggs and so on. It's the red egg, the blood of Christ, the, the, you know, the vitality, the resurrection. So I was just... And you were, and when I saw Michael here, he had he he was just sending this picture of the Mary Magdalene around too. There's something so. Part of what, what I think is going on in the culture is a shift from the masculine, the you know resurgence of the feminine, the emergence of it, and a shift from a much linear way of things to a more masculine, to a more feminine, rounded way of being. And it both affects me and, and I mean, it's what the culture is going through, and that's that's what we're needing is a more healing, round, wholeness uh, mm -hmm. type. Type place and 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 part of that hopeful vision is that we went from the numinous down to the scientific and the granular, and that we may now be reascending to the numinous, reconstructing it with this scientific understanding as well, uh, and you know right. I think that's the hope. Uh, the hope is that we can do that, and uh, as Jung felt. Um, it's hanging by a thread, and the thread is the human psyche. Uh, and and as I've I've been spending a lot of time with Jung, and um, and I, I just feel that in a way that at a time when we are rethinking what is numinous for us, um, his central insight was, and it was one that many of the traditions had, but his central insight was that we had it within ourselves. And there's a very ancient insight, the relationship of the Atman and the Purusha, mm -hmm. or, you know, the, uh, however you do it, that there's some deep relationship between the miracle of the cosmos and the miracle of the human soul. And that yes. somehow that's coming back together, uh, and that we need that desperately if humanity is to survive. And I think that's the new teaching. Right. Um, it's an old teaching. But I think uh, it's come again, and, and I think, Steve, that, that your work expresses that in, in an individual person, in an individual soul, and um, I thank you very much for sharing this with us. Yeah. Thank you. If, if, I, if I could also just finish as a... Yeah. As a, as a so... This this was on the web. This is the website, you know, that I did in 2007. This yeah. is the, I didn't know this. I was making an end so. This is a Zen home thing. So this is what I made. Look look at Jackie's. What's what's up there? Yeah. That's 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 the uh, that's their symbol too. Yeah, exactly. Great. I just want to take a few questions. Uh, anybody have questions for Steve before we go upstairs? We're gonna. Yes, go ahead. Wait. Not a question, but I am struck by the red, first of all the story about the red egg and that you you had the the impulse to create the red egg and then you saw the Mary Magdalene image of the red egg. Yes, right? that was all, yes. That's a first of all it's wonderful, but also it strikes me that you know and usually it's this deep cobalt blue that's an expression of the deep feminine um, in some you know from what I know of what I've been taught about the deep feminine what you saw and so it's interesting to me that you know the deep cobalt blue is that that sense of settling the sense of settling into the self and it brings serenity but the red egg is that vitality and I mean do you do you see it like that sort of like the vitality and the life force um, 
and what that would mean from recovering from illness and what it means for the planet to recover. Uh, what the, one of my favorite images in Jung's, in, the, in this red book, which is a red book, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> Huh. Red, red is also albedo. It's, it's the rubido in, in alchemy, which is the yes. final stage. It's the stage when you're just before completion. Okay. So he, he has a picture of the cosmic egg, this beautiful blue circular cosmic egg. It's just, it's, it's, it's just an outstanding thing. Um, maybe it's not, about the, it's not about sort of it's the feminine and masculine here, perhaps, with the red. I think it has, red has more to do with the heart and, and the vitality and the rebirth. That's what it's and healing. It's also it's it's is a marvelous symbol. And did you do this circle as part of the red egg? I, well, I did this. I mean, I did this because it said to do it at the for the when I created the. You know, this was way before I decided to build the. This is two thousand seven. The red egg came this last summer. Well, that's. I mean, it has it. You know, it has all the world to me. Feeling of incarnate. You know, mm -hmm. The blood, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the in, in the sense of the egg is no longer white and pristine, but it's absolutely oh, at the heart I of like our, that. That's the heart, our yes. life kind yes. of feeling. Yes. And you're working with stone is fascinating because uh, years ago I was in New Mexico surrounded by stone, and I was happened to be reading uh, a Karenye book on the Eleusinian mysteries, mm -hmm. and he was talking about going down in the grotto and how very few things were revealed from those experiences in the secrets were kept, you know, for the... But one thing that occurred to me was that when the stones sing, mm -hmm. you're working constantly with them, when stones start to sing, we will live forever. Which is to say that the stones are alive. When the stones come to life, which is what you're doing, I mean, the interaction or the dance you're doing with the stones is... is what you call bridging one of these schisms that's mm. in our culture between us and the inanimate, which is really animate. Mm. Mm -hmm. So, mm. yeah. you know, I'm feeling like you're making, you're throwing a bridge mm. into that mystery, which is really compelling. Mm. Yeah, I've always, I've always felt that stones had kind of a slow consciousness, like, like, for, over a ten thousand year period, it's like a second. I mean, it's, you know, if, if stones could talk, type thing. And I must say, as I was doing some of the stonework, it got kind of eerie because sometimes. You know, I would just, the right stone would be there. You know, it was very, uh, it didn't happen all the time. And they were building the stone right out of the earth. Yes, right, and they would just appear, and it was, you know. So, um, again, Steve, thank you. Uh, two things, we're going to go upstairs, there'll be refreshments, and uh, Steve's uh, images are up there. Um, before we go up, uh, particularly those of you who are, are new to Commonweal, um, the way the new school works uh, is that um, all our programs are free, and we ask uh, you to consider supporting us. And there's a hat there and a little glass uh, jar out in front. And if you would, if you enjoyed this and would consider contributing and helping us continue it, we would particularly welcome that. Uh, so, uh, Steve, again, we'll have a chance to chat with you upstairs. Yes. And uh, thank you all for coming, and uh, we hope you'll come back and 
happy birthday. Whose birthday is it here? Yes, happy birthday to you. We might even threaten to sing you the Bolinas happy birthday song. <laughs> I don't know if there are enough of us here to do it. I, I think we could do it, don't you think so? Okay, let's do it. Happy birthday, we're in love with you. Happy birthday, baby. Happy, happy birthday to you.